listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The sermon scripture for this week is Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowed and the plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, James, for that reading. You can always spot a seminarian because they're going to pronounce Satan with the Hebrew pronunciation. I love that. That was awesome. That was good. Or that too. That too. Satan. Satan. Um, So this is it, you guys. Um, We have been in a teaching series since the fall, uh, exploring the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, We've called this series A Year of Wisdom. Let's bring up this uh, timeline here. That's got a glare on it, so I'm going to go over here. 
Uh, we started this, it was either early November or right at the end of October, uh, and I've really been liking this series. I know some of you, uh, a number of you, have really enjoyed it too. Some of you have not, um, and that's okay. It's, it's actually good news because this is it. Um, this is our kind of last foray into Old Testament wisdom literature with the book of Job. Um, we started out in the book of Proverbs, an invitation to wisdom. Then we read Ecclesiastes together. Then we did Song of Songs, Sexy Wisdom. And now we are ending things, uh, Old Testament wisdom, with the book of Job, Wisdom in Suffering. Um, I also have to acknowledge that I'm a little sad about this one um, because this is my last teaching series before my sabbatical. Uh, One of the things that our church does, um, it's actually an amazing gift, is we give our pastors a three-month sabbatical every five years, um, which is really incredible. Uh, Three months where the pastor gets to uh, go off the grid, rest, study, recoup, plan for the next five years of ministry, and I'm taking my sabbatical this summer. We've talked about this uh, at some church meetings and things like that, Um, but that's happening starting in June. Uh, We have a little write-up about the sabbatical that's available at the Connection Center, so you can grab that before you go. Uh, And we're also doing a QA and a after church on April 30th, that's two weeks from today, um, where if you have any questions, any concerns, anything you want to talk about pertaining to the sabbatical, come to that Q&A and we're going to talk about it there. It's going to be a really good conversation. Um, Pastor Elisha is going to be taking the reins for the summer. Can we get some clapping? There we go, Pastor Elisha. Um, she's going to do an amazing job. Uh, I believe the plan is for Elisha to preach on the Sermon on the Mount this summer, so we're manning this with uh, Jesus wisdom. Uh, that is going to be incredible. You're not going to want to miss that. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount is like my favorite part of the Bible, and she gets to preach on it, but that's okay. I'm not mad. <clears throat> I'm not mad. Um, but I will be back in September, which means that this is our last hurrah for now. This is our last teaching series together, pre-sabbatical, the book of Job, Wisdom in Suffering. We're going out on a positive note, you guys. It's going to be, it's going to be good. Um, Let's hit it. Let's dive in. Let's talk about Job a little bit. Job is different from the other wisdom literature we've read so far. Um, All these books, all the Old Testament wisdom is poetic. It's poetry. Um, But unlike the others, Job tells a story. Proverbs was a collection of these short, pithy, poetic sayings, right? Um, things like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? That's, that's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes had a lot of poetry, but it took the form of these speeches from a jaded, cynical old teacher who was um, wrestling with their own mortality. Um, and of course, Song of Songs uh, is a collection of erotic love poetry. I know many of you are very happy to be done with that book. Um, but Job is also poetry, but it stands out from the rest because Job is a story. It's a narrative, first and foremost. And that narrative takes the form of an epic poem. To situate this, has anyone here in high school, did you have to read Beowulf? couple of people, uh, Paradise Lost, The Iliad, any of these really long, really boring old historical poems. All right, that's, that's, that's what we mean by epic poetry. Job is just like that. It's the exact same sort of thing. Um, another question, how many of us are familiar already with the story of Job? 
Um, either you read the book, or maybe you've heard about it, you know the, the story, the plot. That's, that's most of us, not all though, which is, which is excellent. Just to show you a little outline of this book, um, if you want to kind of dive in, what's really nice is that the story of Job, the bulk of it, is in just three chapters of the book, the first two chapters and the final chapter, chapter 42. If you want to get, real quick, the ins and outs of the plot of this book, all you have to do is read those two chapters. In between, though, in between chapters 2 and 42 are 39 chapters, next slide, 39 chapters of dense Hebrew poetry. Beautiful poetry, but some of the densest, hardest-to-read stuff in the entire Bible. To summarize a little bit, to, to kind of capture the story, uh, elevator pitch version, Job is a, rich, a righteous man who's insanely rich. This guy has everything you could possibly want. He's got possessions, he's got land, uh, livestock, ten kids, and he worships God. He's a righteous man. One day, God is bragging about Job to Satan, right? It's kind of weird. Um, God's like, hey, Satan, have you met Job? Have you seen my servant Job? I can't get over this guy. This guy's perfect. He does nothing wrong. He's righteous. He's blameless. I can't find anything wrong with him. Job is amazing. And Satan's like, of course Job is amazing. You've given him everything. Take that stuff away, and I bet he curses you to your face. And of course, God, being a, a betting man, uh, is like, you're on, Satan. Let's do it. Have at him. You can take all Job's stuff Take his family, his kids, his flock, everything he has. Just don't touch Job. Don't hurt Job. And in one awful day, terrible day, Job loses everything. His flocks are destroyed. His children die. But Job still praises God. And this is only chapter one, you guys. We're only in the first chapter. Um, chapter two, Satan attacks Job's health. Uh, he's not allowed to kill him, but he's allowed to, to hurt him. Um, Job's skin breaks out in boils and blisters. And then at the end of chapter 2, that's when Job's friends show up. How many of us have heard of Job's friends? If you're familiar with the story, you know this. And Job's friends spend the next 30-plus chapters, all that poetry, trying to convince Job that this is somehow all his fault. You must have done something terrible to tick God off because there is no way a righteous God would inflict this much suffering on an innocent person. Job maintains his innocence. He defends his righteousness. He and his friends go back and forth. It's kind of like um, Hebrew rap battle is kind of the idea of what's going on in these chapters. Um, and then toward the end of the poetry section, God shows up to answer Job put his friends in their place, and then Job is restored to wealth and prosperity. That's the story of Job in a nutshell. It's kind of messed up, right? Like, this, this, is, this is not a good story. Um, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a bit, but it's a really dark story, and what I want to do today 
Before we get too deep into this story and really get into the ins and outs, I want to ground us in this book and talk about how we are going to read the book of Job. Because in a story that is this dark, this messed up, if you don't handle it well, it's really easy to misread and do some damage. So today we're going to look at three questions uh, related to Job. We're going to ask, what kind of book is this? What are we actually reading when we read Job? How should we read Job? What should we look for as we read this book? What's the goal? And finally, what questions is the book of Job wrestling with? What question or questions is this book written to answer? Um, This is going to be more of a heady sermon. I'm just going to warn you right up front. You're going to want to have your thinking caps on. Might not be a bad idea to take notes on this one. Um, It's not going to be super life applicable today. Um, We'll get to that. But like today, we're not going to pull out the three keys for applying Job to our life. Like That's not not what we're doing right now. Um, But this is a teaching that you might want to revisit periodically as we go through this book. Um, Because we're going to lay a lot of groundwork for this one. So whether it's on the podcast, the website, YouTube, wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of earmark, what is it, April 16th, and come back periodically to this one. Does that sound like a plan? We good? Okay. Let's dive in, and let's start with this first question. What kind of book is Job? What are we reading when we open the pages of Job? In terms of genre, I've already kind of said that this book is an epic poem, and I think that's about right. I think that's probably the closest category we have uh, to what this book is doing. But there is a deeper question behind this one that we have to talk about. Um, And it might be a little uncomfortable for for many of us. Um, But with this story in particular, we really have to ask this next question. Is the book of Job historical, or is it more of a parable? Is Job historical? Is this telling us literal history, events as they actually occurred, or is this book more of a metaphor, more of an allegory? Um, To use uh, modern terminology, is it fiction or nonfiction? Is Job a work of history? Let me clarify here what I'm not asking, though, because this is important, too. I'm not asking if the book of Job is divinely inspired. Uh, I'm not asking if it's important. I'm not asking if we have to take it seriously. All of that is a given. The book of Job is part of the collection that we know as the Bible. It's sacred text. It's our scripture. The book of Job is God-breathed, divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit had a role in producing this text. None of that is up for debate with this question. The question is, was God inspiring literal history or was God inspiring more of a parable? We kind of get the difference there? Okay. This is an important question because the Bible has a lot of different kind of literature in it. There's a lot of historical stuff in the Bible. Um, Books like Kings, Chronicles, the Gospels, these are books that record history. But it also includes a number of texts that we don't take literally. Um, The parables of Jesus are a good example. A parable is a story that is made up to teach a deeper truth. It's one of the key ways Jesus taught was through parables. There is no good Samaritan. That was not a historical person, right? That was a story Jesus made up to teach a lesson about loving our enemies. A lot of the poetry in the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. Um, In Song of Songs, to use a recent example, when the female lover invites 
her lover to come into her garden and sample her nectar. They're not talking about plants, right? Like, that's not, that's not what's going on in Song of Songs. We don't read that literally. Um, in Proverbs, more G-rated example, uh, in Proverbs, when it says that God is a high tower, no one takes that literally, right? That's a, that's a metaphor. No one looks at the Empire State Building and goes, God, right? Like, that's that's not what it means when it says the Lord is a tall tower. Not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. So which is it with Job? Is this history or is this a parable? If you're in a place in your faith uh, where it is really important for Job to be literal history, I don't want to take that from you at all. Like, more power to you. You can read this book literally and still get the point. But there are some clues in the text. Uh, there's some good reasons in the book of Job to assume that maybe this is not literal history. Um, The first is that there's no historical setting provided in this book. No historical setting in the book of Job. Uh, Normally, when the Bible does history in, in like historical books, we get some sort of setting usually connected to the reign of some king. Um... In the 10th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, in the 20th year of King David, that sort of thing. Um, There's a famous example of this in the Gospel of Luke. It comes to us in Luke 2, verses 1 to 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke is giving us a historical setting there. Um, He's doing history. By contrast, here are the opening words of Job. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. No mention of a time frame. No mention of like what year and whose reign we're in. 42 chapters in this book, they never give us a setting, a historical setting. All we get is there once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. You could almost translate this, once upon a time in the land of us. Like, it, it works. That's the, that's the vibe. That's the tone of this book. Another clue this might not be literal history are the names we find in Job. Names are super important, you guys, especially with, with old books. Um, names can tell you a lot about the type of story you're reading and how it was meant by the author. Um, I've used this example before, but has anyone in here ever read uh, Pilgrim's Progress by um, John Bunyan? Anyone? No one? It is an old book. Oh, my wife has. My wife has. Um, in, in, in y'all's defense, it was published in 1678, so a bit before our time. Um, it was written by a Puritan minister named John Bunyan, not to be confused with the giant lumberjack Paul Bunyan, different characters, very important. Um, <clears throat> but Pilgrim's Progress... One of the first great um, English language novels, by the way, tells a story of a character named Christian Pilgrim, who you're not going to believe it, is a Christian Pilgrim. Like, what are the odds, right? What are the odds? Um, And this Christian Pilgrim, named Christian Pilgrim, leaves his home in the worldly city on a quest for the heavenly city. On the way, he encounters a number of different characters, different figures, um, people with names like Charity, hope, faith, uh, despair, envy, wrath. Some of those characters help him on his quest for the heavenly city, and some of them trip him up. It's an allegory, right? 
It is a metaphor. If anyone tried to argue that Christian Pilgrim was a historical person, if some archaeologist launched a dig to find the heavenly city, like they would be missing the point of the book. The names clue us in. And some of the names in the book of Job work just like that. Uh, It's pretty awesome. Take Job, for example. Let's start with the main character, Job. Um, Job is not a common name in Scripture. You don't find a lot of characters named Job. In fact, he's the only character named Job, which makes sense because you would never want to name your kid Job because Job, in addition to being a name, it's also a verb in Hebrew that means to afflict or to persecute. Job. Uh, When the Israelites are afflicted by the Egyptians, they are Jobed. When Babylon carries uh, the people of Jerusalem off into exile, they are Jobed. Job means to afflict or persecute. If you turn it into a name, like a title, it would mean something like the afflicted one. Job is the afflicted one. Could that have anything to do with the story? I wonder. Um, We're also told that Job lives in the land of Uz. Now, Uz, I love saying Uz. Um, Some some people, it's really easy mix-up, some people can confuse the land of Uz with the land of Ur. Uz and Ur. We we won't say that together. Um, People will think things. Um, But Ur, Ur is not Uz. Ur is where Abraham is from. If you know the Abraham story, he comes from Ur. It's an ancient name for the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon was once called Ur. Job is from Uz, different place. Um, And we're told, all we really learn about Uz in the book of Job is that it's in the east, which is not super helpful. That's that's, that's broad, very broad category. Um, Some people have identified Uz as the land of Edom, which is the land just east of Israel, uh, the area we would call... uh, Jordan today, that's the country there, Jordan. Um, That area was called Edom, and a lot of people think that's where Uz was. There's just one problem with that theory. Um, There is no record anywhere outside of the Bible of that area or any other area being called Uz. The Edomites did not call their country Uz. Um, All the literature we have, the writings, the records of all the ancient peoples, None of them mention a place called us. As far as we know, there probably wasn't a place called us. This could all change tomorrow, of course, if archaeologists dig up the the lost city of us. But as far as we know, there is no land of us. But us is a Hebrew word. Do you guys want to know what us means? The Hebrew word us means counsel or advice. Like if you've ever had a friend try to explain what's happening in your life. Uh, Maybe in a time of hardship or suffering, uh, if you ever had someone show up and give you advice, that is us. Job in the land of us is the afflicted one in the land of advice. That's the story of Job, you guys. Like I'm so, so, you guys don't look as excited as me. The afflicted one in the land of advice. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Anybody hearing this story or reading it in Hebrew right away? Oh, of course. Job in the land of us. The afflicted one in the land of advice. It's like Christian pilgrim searching for the heavenly city. 
another indicator this might be more of an allegory. So we got a lack of historical setting, we got the names, there's one other reason that we might want to read Job as a parable, and it's a theological, a theological reason not to take this as literal history. And that's because this is a really problematic depiction of God. Really problematic. This is a messed up story. In this story, God takes a righteous man, a good man, a a person who worships God, and shows him off to Satan. Like, I want to be righteous, you guys. I want to be holy. I want to be like Jesus, but I hope I'm never so righteous that God shows me off to the devil. Like, please, no, no. And then when Satan makes his little bet, God's like, have Adam. Go for it. I bet you he still worships me. That is a messed up view of God. I'm going to go on record and say I don't think God would do that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, but seriously, I don't, I don't believe that the God revealed in Jesus would do this. The God we see in Jesus is a God who enters into our suffering and suffers alongside us. In fact, if anything, Jesus looks a lot more like Job in this book. Let's see, a righteous man who suffers because of a battle between God and Satan, um, who in the end is restored to new life. That's Jesus, you guys. That's the story we like, just did last week. And we're going to talk more about the Jesus-Job connection in, in a future week, so, so look forward to that. For now, though, I just want to say I don't think God would do this. I really don't. If God makes these kind of wagers in real life with real people, we've got much bigger problems than whether or not to read Job literally. <laughs> That's very concerning. So if we're not going to read Job as literal history, which, again, you're still free to, more power to you, but how else to read this book? How... Should we or how could we read this book? That's big question number two. If Job isn't history, how do we read it? I would propose that in addition to being an epic poem, Job is wisdom literature, first and foremost, kind of in keeping with our theme in this series. It's wisdom literature. The goal of wisdom literature is not to keep a historical record. It's not to record events as they actually occurred. Proverbs doesn't do that. Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. Song of Songs, as far as we know, isn't doing that. The goal of wisdom literature isn't even to tell a good story. Wisdom literature is written to help us grow in wisdom. Just like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, this stuff should challenge us. It should shake us. You should read wisdom literature and then go for a walk and rethink your life. That's how this works. Read it again, have a cup of tea. Read it again, pray over it, meditate on it, think about it. That's how wisdom literature affects us. It challenges us, changes us, it helps us to mature in wisdom. Has anyone here ever experienced suffering before? Yeah, hardship, bad times, rough day, trauma. That's pretty much everybody, right? We've all, we've all been there. If you're anything like me, when you suffer, when bad things happen to you, you wonder, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is God letting this happen? I thought that if I did the right thing, uh, if I went to church, if I said my prayers, if I read my Bible, I thought God would protect me. I thought that's how it worked. The book of Job is like a a hypothetical case study 
right? Take that experience of suffering that we all know and times it by a hundred. Imagine a righteous man, not just righteous, perfect, blameless, never does anything wrong. God can't find anything wrong with him. He doesn't keep Torah. Job doesn't know Torah. Newsflash, Job is not an Israelite. He's from somewhere in the east, a land called Uz. But he's still perfect, almost like he has the law in his heart. And Job is rich, not just Bill Gates rich, though. No, no, Bill Gates has nothing on Job. Job is the richest person imaginable. The description in the first chapter of this book, we don't exactly know the conversion rate of, like, camels and things like that. Trust me, this guy is richer than any king at that time, uh, any bank we would think of today. Job is the holiest and wealthiest person on the planet. But Job suffers, and not just a little suffering, not the day-to-day hardships we all face. Job loses everything. In one day, he suffers in the worst way imaginable, his health, his money, his children. Imagine all your worst fears about pain and suffering being poured onto one righteous person. What would you do? What would you say to them? What would you tell Job if he was your friend? What if it happened to you? Would you worship God or would you curse God to his face? Wisdom in suffering, that's what this book is trying to impart us with. Which brings me to the last question that we're going to grapple with. What questions does the book of Job wrestle with? What questions are this book asking? Is this book asking? That was weird. That's a weird plural. What question is this book asking? This one's really important because if we don't go into Job asking the right questions, if we don't know what questions this book is actually grappling with, we're going to get the wrong answers. Job does not answer the question of why we suffer. Let's say that one more time. Job does not answer the question of why we suffer. Um, why does God allow suffering? Why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the primary question of this book. A lot of people have turned to the book of Job in times of suffering, looking for answers, looking for a reason, and been sorely disappointed. The character of Job never gets an answer. He never finds out why he's suffering. We know it's because God and Satan made a bet, but Job never finds out why. Even when God answers him, God doesn't tell him why he's suffering, maybe because it wouldn't help anyway. Any answer to why you're suffering, even if it comes from the lips of God himself, is not going to help or make you feel better. That's part of the wisdom of this book. So if Job doesn't tell us why we suffer, what questions is it grappling with? Um, There's at least two. Two big questions at the heart of this book. Is God just and is righteousness worth it? Is God just and is righteousness worth it? Is God just? Is God fair? Can there be a just God in a world with so much suffering? 
You think so? We'll find out in a couple weeks. When good people suffer, is God still just? When righteous people suffer for no reason at all, is God just? That's the first question before this book. The second one is, is righteousness worth it? Of course righteousness is worth it if it leads to a reward, if God puts a hedge of protection around God's righteous people, right? But what if God doesn't do that? What if that hedge of protection is lifted? What if righteousness and suffering have absolutely nothing to do with each other? Whether we experience pain or joy, prosperity or loss, what if that has absolutely no connection to how good or bad, how righteous or wicked we are? If being righteous doesn't protect us from suffering, why be righteous? That's the second question this book is grappling with. And we're not going to answer it today. <laughs> but we're going to work on it for the next few weeks together. Um, I do want to say, in your going deeper, I don't have my uh, bulletin handy, that's okay. In your going deeper for this week, um, on the sermon note page in your bulletin, we've got a whole host of questions for you to reflect on as we head into the book of Job. I want to encourage you to spend some time with this this week. Spend some time in prayer. Reread Job chapter 1. Maybe hit chapter 2 and 42 as well. Reflect on them uh, in your quiet time, morning, evening, whatever works. Pray over them, and uh, I'll see you all back here next Sunday to talk about Satan. Let's pray, though. God, give us wisdom and clarity as we grapple with the story of Job. Help us enter into this text and read it on its own terms. Give us um, ears to hear and hearts to receive the wisdom of this book. We pray that you would go with us from this place, Lord. We ask for your blessing in the spirit of the risen Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.